Sorry, man. Welcome, Welcome no back, worries. guys, to episode 29 of the JPS podcast. And in today's episode, I'm uh, honored to have Dr. Mike Israel on the show. So welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Not a problem, man. Thank you for being here. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Mike, do you even lift? But, uh, all no, I, I study a lot. I don't ever lift, really. It's hard. Lifting is hard. It's got weights, and they're scary, and they're made of metal. <laughs> all jokes aside, though, guys, Mike is uh, one of the leading industry experts on muscle hypertrophy resistance training. His credentials are so exhaustive that I'm not even going to bother rattling them off, but He's one hella smart guy, PhD in sports physiology, and coaches a lot of elite level athletes. So, someone you should definitely check out if you haven't already. Um, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Mike? Um, I think that is uh, just about a really good summary. <laughs> so, it's probably vastly overstated, but uh, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> And in today's episode, guys, I wanted to pick Mike's brain on all things hypertrophy, which I guess is uh, not coming as a surprise to anyone, nor Mike, um, but more specifically discuss his recent book, The Volume Landmarks, which uh, I've recently downloaded and read. It's over 100 pages worth of advice. Uh, Mike's getting his cardio in, so... (laughs) Yeah, my cardio is just walking around the the apartment. I'm listening. Please continue. And uh, yeah, this book um, you know, qualifies and really helps clear up a lot of the misconceptions uh, surrounding training volume and how much work we can do um, in the gym to maximize hypertrophy and all these kind of things. Um, and I'm going to link the book below. So if you guys are, are interested, make sure you do purchase it, have a read because I guarantee you'll get a lot out of it. So Mike, to kick off our hypertrophy discussion... You know, just so we can get everybody on the same page, um, what are the fundamental tenets of muscle growth from a physiological standpoint? Well, so there's kind of two processes that occur for hypertrophy um, to be something that results. One of them is the stimulus, and the other is the recovery and adaptation. And the stimulus has to be a sufficient amount of volume. That's the most important. And the uh, higher the intensity generally, the better, although there are some complexities to that. There's kind of a, a really big limiting return sort of situation there. But generally, if you lift plenty and you lift relatively heavy and the frequency is at least once a week, but anything past that is kind of just nitpicky, then you're doing a good job on the stimulus end. And then on the recovery adaptation end, if you make sure to sleep relatively well at least, rest relatively well, don't do a ton of other physical activity, and I mean that literally, like don't do a ton of other physical activity, some is just fine, and if you provide the nutrients for adaptation, which includes a hypercaloric diet in most cases and sufficient amount of protein, then you will get hypertrophy. So I would say those are the two core basic principles. Stimulate, do a good job in the gym, and then make sure to realize the adaptations by supplying adequate food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those two parts always have to be there. All the food in the world isn't going to make you jacked if you train pathetically or not at all. You know, Clearly, people who just sit around aren't getting jacked. And uh, all of the training in the world won't make you big unless you eat a hypercaloric diet that's rich in protein. Yeah, perfect. Really simple and easy for the guys to understand. And yeah, in summary, resistance training initiates that muscle building process and nutrition simply augments it. And we know that training volume is important and you know that being measured by the total work done. 
Um, and in what you've outlined in your book, you know, number of uh, working sets per week for a muscle group. Uh, but to give listeners an insight into what amount of work is required to build muscle, can you just give us the broad strokes, like I mentioned to you before we were on air, I didn't want to you know, make this another MAV, MAV, MRV um, you know, discussion, but can you just give the guys the broad strokes and basic definitions of um, how much volume and how we measure that in terms of um, the concepts that you highlight in your book? I guess when people, did you catch my last question about swearing? Me? No. <laughs> you can swear. Go for it. <laughs> I can? Of course. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so it really pisses me off when people try to sort of posture in a macho attitude by oversimplifying things. You still there? Mm-hmm. Yep. I can hear you just fine. Sweet. And let me know if you can. So okay. people say, just fucking train and eat like don't overthink shit that is a ridiculous ridiculous piece of advice because you know what is training how much training do i do one set per week and it'll be like it's not enough like how do you how do you know maybe that's enough you know do we do 50 sets a week well that's too much how do you know um same with eating you know you could say the same thing like train and eat like eat what <laughs> right and so there's a lot of information that people try to oversimplify things and there's a lot of information that's lost and, and there's a couple of really important pieces of information about training volume. Training volume has been shown to be the most important factor in hypertrophy. So first of all, it's really important. And second of all, well, what are the potential kinds of volume that we could do and what kind of effects do they have on our physiques? The first kind of training volume that we have to be concerned with, or the volume landmark, is what's called minimum effective volume, MEV. It's really simple. It's the least amount of work that you can do and still grow from. Because we all know that once you've trained for a couple of years, just doing like one set a week, for example, simply doesn't grow you. Even doing five sets a week per body part doesn't grow you. You have to do some minimum amount to get any growth at all. So there's that value. But of course, the more you train, the more you grow to a point up until you can't recover anymore. Once your recovery is interfered with, that's a really, really big problem because if you're not recovering, you're definitely not growing, especially in the long term. So then you hit a point in your volume, uh, the next volume landmark, it's maximum recoverable volume, the, the infamous MRV. And if you train more than, with more volume than that, then you're definitely not going to grow. You're probably just going to get hurt and all kinds of bad stuff is going to happen. So we have this band right in between the two, between MEV and MRV, and somewhere between there, and we're not really sure where, and probably in a lot of places between there, is maximum adaptive volume that's the most or that's the best volume to train with to get the most hypertrophy. Because we're not shooting for minimum effective volume. You know, people who say, well, you should shoot minimum effective volume, that's ridiculous because then you'll get minimum, literally minimum growth by definition, the least detectable amount of growth possible. No one wants that. Also, you don't want to train at maximum recoverable volume all the time because you're just like uh, masochistically training the most you can possibly recover from. But we want to train with an average value that is the most we can possibly grow from. Mm -hmm. But I, I guarantee you that value is going to be between the MRV and the MEV. And the last uh, volume landmark is very simple. If you, for some reason, want to just maintain a body part or an entire body, let's say you're on vacation, you're traveling, you want to know how much training you have to do to maintain your gains because you know you don't have the time, resources, food, or whatever to try to make any gains. So that's called the maintenance volume. And the maintenance volume, MV, is really quite simple. It's good to know, though, because if you're not prioritizing a certain body part or any body parts, it's good to know how little training you can get away with and still uh, keep all of your muscle instead of losing some. Awesome. Yeah, that most people should be familiar with those. And yeah, that was just another great summary of you know the concepts that you 
discuss in the Volume Landmarks book. And obviously, there's a lot of inconsistencies, I guess, in people's interpretation of volume in terms of number of sets. And you know, I know you've talked about this in the book. Um, as well as on various articles and whatnot. But what are the prerequisites and assumptions that need to be made regarding intensity, rep and set ranges, proximity to failure, all those kind of variables to you know count um, our volume landmarks in terms of number of sets? Yeah, totally. This is a really good question. So, I mean, you could just cut volume in the number of kilograms lifted per week, but that ends up being sort of really esoteric recommendations that just aren't really intuitive to people. Um, and you know, there's an intensity consideration there. It's a big factor. So for example, if you're lifting close to your one repetition max, then your maximum recovery volume is going to be very, very low because each set is so taxing, especially to the nervous system. Um, on the other hand, if you just count in kilograms and you're, you're lifting sets of 30, the total, just because of the high reps, the total number of kilograms you lift. up over the course of the week is going to be massive, but that's probably not going to be that fatiguing. You calculated the kilograms jog three kilometers. You've technically done an unbelievable amount of volume for your quads, but you're not going to even get sore from something like that if you're relatively well trained. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of assumptions that when you're doing the set proxy, which I think uh, Greg Knuckles is kind of famous for really making popular, possibly introducing, you're basically proxying volume by number of sets to just make more simple real world and just usable, right? More relatable. The best way to do that is to consider real working set scenarios for hypertrophy, which means we're considering, generally we're considering sets between five and 20 repetitions each. We're considering uh, reps in reserve between one and four or zero and four, like sets taken to failure or up to four reps away from failure. And the weights we're generally talking about correspond to those rep ranges. So, you know, up to like 85% 1RM at the highest levels and down to the 60% or, or, or a little less at the lower levels. And once you have sets like that, then you can relatively easily com com uh, compare them to other uh, exercises and get a really good standard going. Now, now, mind you, there's a lot of variation still there with like something like exercise selection. Mm -hmm. You know, leg presses, or leg extensions are not going to disrupt your quads nearly as much as squats, mm -hmm. and they're certainly not going to have attacks on what's called a systemic MRV as much. So not, they're not going to beat you up as much and suppress your ability to recover from whole body effort as much as squats. So there's definitely uh, some wiggle room still. It's not a perfect measure, but it's a decent one to at least get the conversation started. Yeah, awesome. And as you mentioned, when determining whether a movement contributes uh, towards volume for a specific muscle group, you know, within a weekly, uh, you know, volume calculation, you've said that only prime movers should attribute to weekly volume calculations. And again, this comes down to practical considerations and not being, you know, overly esoteric, like you mentioned. Uh, but can you just elaborate to listeners why this is the case? Why? What's the case? that we count volume for the prime movers uh, towards a specific muscle group's uh, volume for the week. Oh, as opposed to like uh, synergists and, uh, and yeah. other muscles. Yeah, I mean, so you can actually count it both ways. You, um, what we don't want people to do is to start fractional counting like and, and just drive themselves insane. Mm -hmm. um, if you have prime movers, then like for example your bench presses you're going to count your chest into the volume and for triceps and front delts they're definitely involved but they're clearly not the limiting factor in most people's bench presses and they're not the ones taking the most damage and the most fatigue or getting the most stimulus for that matter so what you do is when you count formally you pretty much just count prime movers 
but you keep an eye towards lots of synergistic uh, work to make sure that it's being accounted for at least to some extent. So, for example, when we issued you know, the guides that are in RenaissanceParentization.com, the central uh, uh, the volume guides, central hypertrophy hub, um, we, we basically did it in prime movers, but there's always uh, some writing there that says, look – you, we generally recommend something like maybe 12 to 14 sets around, you know, uh, is close to a really good place to train for triceps, for example. And I'm not even sure that's the number. I'm pulling it off the top of my head. So uh, it really is all super relevant because you can just look it up online. But um, let's say, you know, let's say you just make up a number. Let's say 10 sets of triceps is good to work with. Uh, and it says that that's in the context of a program where you're doing plenty of compound pressing for shoulders and especially for chest. Yep. If you are doing – so that's the running assumption. So then you start you know, around you know, that number and kind of work your way from there. And if your program is a little bit different, if your program just happens to not be a lot of chest and shoulder work, then uh, your MRV, uh, for example, for triceps will be higher. Mm-hmm. Like you'll get up to 18 sets of triceps and be able to recover because the extra work isn't there. So these numbers, they can be couched and, and oftentimes are in, in the sense of just prime movers only, but you have to have an awareness of how your body responds to fatigue, which comes back to the idea that these numbers are only very general suggestions to give you a feel for what's going on. The rest of it should be handled with auto-regulation, actually seeing if mm-hmm. those muscles are recovered to find your own volume landmarks in the context of that current program. Yeah, spot on. And that leads me into the next question I had because I'm sure you're aware that many people look for a number of sets that's the magic target and the perfect concrete or fixed landmark that they need to hit in order to, you know, in the, con- in the example that you use, build their triceps. However, we know that this isn't true and that these, rain- these ranges for volume are indeed floating and not static. So can you outline to listeners why uh, you know, volume and MRV, MAV is always going to be shifting up and down? I mean, it's just not. It's not just uh, so. The, there's a couple pieces of news there. First of all, those numbers are different for each individual. Mm. Second of all, they're different for individuals over the course of their careers. And third of all, they're different from each individual week to week potentially, um, because of a couple of factors. One is just the design of your musculature. Some individuals have really, really strong quads that are really designed in two ways. The first way is to generate a lot of force, and second of all is to take on a lot of damage from training. And because they can both generate a lot of force and take a lot of damage, they are very highly prone to high levels of fatigue and high levels of stimulus. So they might have a very low MRV for that particular individual uh, because they simply, every time they do a squat, it really messes up their quads. Other individuals, based on their body mechanics, the way they squat, and even the design of the muscle itself, the quads just might not take as much damage during the same kind of look and squat, and thus, or or any any other kind of quad movement, and thus they can do a lot more work with that muscle and not accumulate uh, nearly as much fatigue, and thus recovery is still possible with maybe double the volume. And of course, as you go through your career, um, you know you get bigger and stronger. Sometimes, interestingly enough. You become more in tune with how to activate certain muscles. Like, for example, if somebody fixes your technique for you, over time you you improve your technique on lat pulldowns, where before you were like pulling a lot with the arms, you really couldn't feel out your back. Now that you're really good at activating your lats, the MRV for the lats might actually go down because every single rep is that much more effective and thus that much more stimulative and taxing. So it's one of those situations where – the volume guides that we made, which is not part of the book, but it's a, it's completely free on online, renaissanceperiodization.com, um, 
the central uh, hub there just lists our experience with tons and tons of athletes, with ourselves, and looking at the literature. And it's, it's, it's a starting place. That's all it is. It's just like a start at the lower end of things and work your way in and always see how you respond. Because it, and, and a lot of people will be disappointed. They'll be like, well, it says like it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 20 sets per week. Like I could have told you that. Well, no shit. <laughs> right? This isn't – it would be impossible for us to – guide for a population uh, which uh, what to do I, i'll give you a, not even an analogy a literal uh I, would say it's, I guess it's an analogical process of the body but it just literally works on the same kinds of uh constraints um you know like the typical question you get from people who like are really really new to fitness and just balls you with asking questions they'll be like how many calories should i eat per day have you ever gotten that question <laughs> yeah, before always <laughs> like like wow yeah it's a fucking one number man and we've just been hiding it from you you know like it's a conspiracy <laughs> among jack guys and the thing is it's like is it meaningful to say like, well, there's no such thing as just – you can't give you any advice because there's no recommendation. It's just all individual. Well, it's not all individual. You can say, well, how big are you? And they're like, well, you know, I'm like 75 kilos. And you just to start out with something like 2,500 calories and see how your body weight responds mm-hmm. and then increase by 500 or decrease by 500 and then go from there, right? You're not going to say like, oh, well, just start with 6,000 because that would be insane. That's like the MRV equivalent of telling someone to start with 30 sets per week for their <laughs> triceps. Like we're probably not. Is there someone who can do that and still survive and still benefit? Of course. There's lots of people, numerically lots, statistically very rare, yeah. right? So it's one of those things like I think the MRV guide should be interpreted like uh, the calorie formula for mass mm-hmm. gaining. Like, you know, multiply your body weight times 50 or something like that, uh, you know, if it's in pounds or something. Um, it's a very general, great place to start, but after that, only your own measurements and feedback can guide the process afterwards. Overload is no doubt a very necessary component of training and obviously trying to achieve hypertrophy. We should continually try to overload our volume and accumulate volume throughout a mesocycle until we can't recover and then we deload. Um, but a question I have for you, Mike, is in regards to different forms of overload, different, uh, leading to different rates of fatigue accrual and adaptation. And in the case of overload, you know, I would like to know what is the primary way you like to uh, apply progressive overload for hypertrophy um, and the timeframes that you recommend for moving from MAV to MRV? Yeah. So I know that the overload has to be applied at least in part with volume. It seems reasonable that the most important factor for hypertrophy should also be the overloaded one. Mm-hmm. I think that from strength training, uh, from thoughts and, and scientific writing on strength training, we inherited this idea that increasing the intensity is the only way to provide overload. And I think that is not an evidence and is um, a fine way to do things, but it, I think it, we have to be a little bit more open-minded. So um, I think that increasing weight on the bar is a good idea, but if you increase it really fast, you exit the repetition range you're trying to train in, which can throw off a lot of other variables. And also it can lead to a reduction in your MRV because the intensity gets so high that it's contributing to a contribution factor to fatigue gets to be much higher than its uh, contribution to, to hypertrophy. So, for example, um, there was a, st- a famous study, I think, by uh, Schoenfeld colleagues, which compared uh, basically seven sets of three or something like that mm-hmm. to uh, – uh, or like eight sets of three, something, something ridiculous, yeah. to three sets of ten or something like that, yeah, and – 
the weight was much heavier for the sets of three than for sets of ten. The volume was identical. And uh, people said, you know, it, the result was the same amount of hypertrophy, roughly speaking. And people said, see, you can train having and still grow. What they didn't do was read the study, because if you read the study, the reports of the actual lifters are like barely moving at the end yeah. of this eight by three. But the three by 10 group was like, we could just do way more and be totally fine. They were barely even affected. So basically, one group was at its MRV or beyond it, and the other group wasn't even close. So now you to really compare, you know, at MRV for both types of intensities, you should really be comparing six by ten or something five by ten versus, you know, the same number, you know, three by eight. And then I guarantee you the hypertrophy would be higher for that group. Mm. So the takeaway lesson from there is, if we increase our intensity, it better not be by leaps and bounds because we're quickly going to exit that realm of optimal intensities to trade off for still the best volumes, right? So taking that into consideration, and of course we want to, you know, every, you know, to, to keep overload uh, a realistic concept, you have to overload to some extent every microcycle, which means that I think you should be increasing your intensity in most cases every microcycle, uh, but by very small amounts, maybe by 1.25 kilos on the bar or by two and a half kilos on the bar like getting into this business with putting 10 kilos on the bar more every time is just unrealistic because you're quickly going to exit the range in which you can productively accumulate volume and because for a lot of you for advanced lifters i think they can just do that intensity increase because their mrv and mev are so close together um because the mrv tends to flatline after a while but the minimum effective volume tends to rise because it becomes more and more challenging to stimulate hypertrophic adaptations you need more and more of a dose in order to do so for intermediate lifters and uh, beginners for sure and definitely for intermediates especially um, you have a big gap between your MEV and your MRV, and that big gap might not be closable by intensity increases alone. So you might actually add volume as a matter of course. So you can add a set every week, for example, uh, per body part, and add you know an average of 1.25 kilos on the bar. And that way you accumulate both volume and, of course, every intensity increase brings with it a volume increase because the you know the multiplier effect there. You know if you're lifting heavier weight for the same sets and reps, it's technically more volume because volume is sets times reps times weight. Right, um, so you still get you get kind of a double pump volume increase and a single pump um, increase of intensity, which I think is a really good thing because most of the increase should be volume based and only some should be intensity based because volume seems to be the most important factor for hypertrophy. I'll tell you how we figured out in the very beginning how I started thinking about this um, uh, way back when uh, 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 the, that this was going to be an issue and that adjustments, especially for intermediates, adjustments of volume by itself, like in set number. Was had to be part of the answer. I'll tell you how. Um, I was, uh, you know, uh, got to where I was introducing some people to weight training because I had been training for like four years or something, uh, three years at the time. And one of my friends, my my friend, my high school friend Max, actually had been training with some powerlifters. And I was like, you know, every time I introduce people, I just give them like three by ten or whatever, and they get crazy sore, and they just like it just some some of them just quit <laughs> because they're like, there's no way I can do this. Uh, I'm out. I'm out of this gym thing. And he's like, why don't you just start with like one set or something per week and then just add sets? And I was like, God damn it, that is fucking brilliant. You know, I think it's something that the powerlifters did there to, to get people into the program. And then I realized that after you deload, after every mesocycle, and especially if you switch exercises, you're not yet accustomed to those set and rep ranges. You're not accustomed to those exercises yet. And because of deloading, you are a little bit undertrained, like just mm -hmm. detrained just a tiny little bit, especially in your ability to recover. So I thought, well, geez, and, and I ran into another problem. Even with people that were well-trained, if they designed a good mental cycle where there was intensity increases, and let's say it was 4 by 10 all across the board, week 1 through week 3, right? Week 1, 4 by 10, 4 by 10, week 2, 4 by 10, and week 3. The first week was like 
super sore, super crazy hell. The second week was like a decent level of stimulus, a little bit of soreness and still, you know, capable of functioning. And then the last week was usually just like underwhelming because they're just this, they're already used to four by 10. Now the weight was heavy in the last week, so it was a challenge, but it didn't seem to be that disruptive to the tissues. So we ran into two problems there. The first problem is that well, it kind of the obvious problem is that week three, we could be doing more, you know, especially because it's before a deload. You mm-hmm. can overreach before a deload and get functional overreaching. So we're, we're not doing a good job on that last week. There's another problem. It's, it's, it's been very clear, especially from recent research, that doing too much damage uh, and too much training does not result in more hypertrophy. There is a certain probably optimal amount of disruption you can have mm-hmm. because, you know, clearly zero disruption is not a good idea. There's just wouldn't train with weights and you'd grow a lot. Um, and then too much disruption, seemingly bad. And I think that when you start four by 10 in week one of a program, something like that, um, it's too much disruption. People are like, Oh my God, I can't like, people would say things like I can't walk. I'm so sore. And they're like, Oh, it's okay. It'll be better by week three. But like, why the fuck are we waiting for week three to be better? Why not start three by 10 on the first week? People get a little bit sore, great growth. Four by ten in the second week, a little bit sore, great growth. Five by ten in the last week, a little bit sore, great growth, deload, and then we're just getting great gains all the time. The average is still the same, but we're letting our body adjust to volume tolerance as it always does and doping it out. It, it's similar. Nobody does this with intensity. No one says, "Okay, it's 180 kilos average lift for deadlift for the for this month." No one starts, you know, no one starts at 180 and then it's 180 for three weeks and they're like, "Oh, now it's easy." Like you go 175, 180, 185. Why don't we do the same thing with set yep. numbers? Baffles the fucking mind. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, brilliant. And uh, a concept you brought up there was functional overreaching. So for those listeners who might not be familiar with this, uh, can you explain what that is and what the benefits of doing that are um, for hypertrophy? Yeah. So functional overreaching has been tested in, in, in nearly every single sports science outcome that, that I'm aware of. Functional overreaching is when you take a system to beyond its abilities to recover in the short term. You can't do this for long. Usually functional overreaching period is like a week, right? So let's say your maximum recover volume is uh, – we'll just, we'll just use the, the, the general recommendation to start 20 sets per week. Functional overreaching is when you hit 22 sets per week, for example, for that last week of training. 22 sets such, sends such a huge shock through the system that your body goes through some extra motions to try to really make sure this kind of thing never sneaks up on it again, and it makes really superlative adaptations, adaptations it normally wouldn't make at a grander scale. But those adaptations only are begun and only allow to happen if you really decrease the stuff in the week after that, right? Because you, it has to come – a big stimulus has to come with a big time for recovery, that is how a lot of athletes in endurance sports, in power sports, in strength sports benefit hugely from that functional overreaching. You do really big stimulus and they really back off and you get really cool super compensation effect. There is no direct evidence that that occurs in hypertrophy that I've seen yet, but it would be a huge surprise if it didn't. Mm. There is some indirect reason to think that satellite cell proliferation might occur better under conditions of more extreme damage, conditions that are simply unsustainable for normal training. Like if you look look through the literature and it says, well, pretty extreme damage causes more satellite cell infiltration integration in the muscle in the myonucleus. You go, oh, okay, so that means we just got to train like fucking crazy all the time, but you can't survive training like crazy all the time. Yeah. So what do you do? You train like crazy right before a deload, controlled crazy you get that deload time to relax everything goes through its magic stuff and then you're better for it at the end of it so uh am i going to say that functional reaching for sure affects hypertrophy no but it's a very good educated guess and remember evidence-based fitness is is all about a very good educated guesses nothing is for sure here especially when individual application is taken into account so i think it's a very good practice 
Yeah, a lot of really good points here. And speaking of uh, satellite cell proliferation, uh, you mentioned how advanced athletes, you know, their MEV and MRV are a lot closer together and functional overreaching becomes like walking a tightrope. It's very easy to to achieve. Um, is there any ways uh, in which advanced athletes can broaden the gap between their MEV and MRV throughout the course of their training career? That's a really tough question. The answer is, of course, yes, but it, it, none of the uh, none of the ways to do that are easy. <laughs> so, one of the easiest, one of the most straightforward, is to eat a hypercaloric diet. Hypercaloric diets have two predictable effects on volume landmarks. Mm-hmm. One is they lower the minimum effective volume, and two is they raise the maximum recoverable volume, thus widening the gap and allowing you more opportunities to overload and more productive training. Right. Um, another one is to get proper rest and recovery. Uh, rest and recovery lowers the MEV and it raises the MRV. Mm-hmm. Same situation. Um, uh, intelligent training manipulation uh, can also help. Let's say uh, dedicated, very overloading sessions sequenced with dedicated sessions that are not as overloading and allow some fatigue to come down until you come and overload again. Because if you just overload, 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 you quickly exit the MRV and yeah. then you have to take a really big deload. So strategic training like that is a really good idea. Um, and outside of that, those basic recommendations, you know, the, the one obvious one is, uh, you know, uh, special sports supplements. So they clearly do a lot of MEV lowering and MRV raising, but they come with the kind of downsides and negatives that the eating food and getting more sleep simply don't. Awesome. And uh, as you mentioned, there are a number of ways that we can manipulate training variables, uh, you know, to manage fatigue. And specifically, we can implement proactive deloads like you mentioned when we have that deliberate functional overreaching versus being more reactive and applying them when we you know, see training performance, motivation to train, all those kind of things drop off. Um, in structuring the phases and you know, periodizing training um, and the mesocycle structure, so to speak, would your aforementioned advice on you know, adding sets and deliberately trying to overreach vary for somebody who's implementing a slower less aggressive form of overload, for example, um, a double or triple progression, and if they're auto-regulating their training? What's a double or triple progression? Oh, so adding, you know, one rep this week and then another rep that the following week and then adding a set uh, versus just adding straight sets week to week. And triple progression would be varying three uh, variables. Yeah. So are you asking how it would be – how the situation would be different for someone yeah, who use, is using kind of a slower accumulation? Yes, correct, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, basically I really – I think that the question of what kind of progression you use is a much smaller one than do you use a progression. Mm. Insofar as you use a progression, you will experience accumulated fatigue. And the accumulated fatigue will time you out at some point anyway. Like you will have to deload at some point. Mm-hmm. There, I think, is kind of a golden realm there where if you increase volumes and intensities too quickly week to week, you essentially just shoot yourself right out of the MEV, MRV window too fast and then you have to get back into it. On the other hand, if you accumulate uh, volume and intensity intensities very slowly week to week, you just kind of never present enough stimulus to do much change. But because you're training above MEV, you're accumulating fatigue. Mm. It's like you time yourself out. Um, I'll put it to you, I'll put it, put to you uh, the following analogy. Let's say you have, um, you know, some, uh, some total amount 
uh, of time to be in an all-you-can-eat buffet, and your job is to try to eat as much food as possible. Um, just stacking plate after plate after plate at the beginning and stuffing yourself is a bad idea because you get so full that uh, you're just – even if it's two hours in the buffet, you're simply – not going to be able to, you know, go on. And once you get maximally full, that's it. Let's say they kick you out once you get maximally full. If you just run up and just do as much eating as possible, it's going to be kind of a bad deal. On the other hand, if you go way the other perspective and you just eat just a little, a little, a little, you know, because the buffet closes in 12 hours anyway or whatever, if you just, you're like, well, I still haven't gotten full. I still have so much time. And then it comes to the 12 hour mark and they're like, well, you got to leave. You're like, well, I haven't eaten any food yet. <laughs> right. But you've been here long enough. So you yeah. got to get out. Right. So there's, <laughs> there's a happy middle where you pace yourself yeah. and, and kind of take a trade off between the two. Right. You're going to, I'm going to push it hard enough to get distinct overloads every microcycle because I know that as soon as I'm in the buffet, so to speak, I'm, the, the clock is rolling, but I'm not going to go, oh my God, the clock is rolling and just go boom right into overload and have to deload and all the stuff. So I think there's a trade off to me. I'm not sure what that trade off is. It's certainly there's a lot of individual difference. There's certainly yeah. a lot of um, room for debate, but I think a middle ground is kind of the best place to start, where you increase intensity a little bit, volume a little bit, and and I think um, I'll put it to you this way: uh, there is there, is also another concern here. Um, your ability to progress is immediately wherever you start your accumulation, um, and this is covered in the book pretty well. Mm. Um, you're already delimiting where the progression will end. Mm -hmm. So let's say you start uh, one rep short of failure, okay, week one. <laughs> I mean, how how much further can you go? I mean, you got like a at best a three week cycle where you do one rep from failure this week, you do zero reps from failure next week, and then you do a grinders and people just take the bar off you and so you don't die in the last week and then it's a shitty way to go right. Yeah. So you basically have like two productive weeks of training. But on the other hand, so people will say like, okay, okay, okay. How about I start really easy so I can have a really long mesocycle so maybe I can do um, eight reps away from failure. But hold the fuck on. Everything up until four reps from failure is junk volume. Like it just doesn't do anything. You're just moving the bar around and it's not stimulative. So we have this window by definition using reps in reserve as a very good proxy for it. Basically, between five, probably more like four reps in reserve and zero reps in reserve, that's our window of where we get the most gains. And because every increase in our ability, every overload brings us closer to failure, um, we have – it's basically all mesocycles time themselves out. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So, so people say like – so for example, and think – sorry if I'm rambling, but I think this is yeah, a really, really important yeah. point um, – People will say, like, you know, how long should a, a mesocycle be? And I'm like, you know, there's considerations between beginners, advanced, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I say, people say, like, you know, I want to do, I really love training. I hate deloading. I want to do a 12-week accumulation <laughs> mesocycle. My first question is, what the fuck are you going to be doing for the four weeks so that you can actually survive the next day? Like, can you, can you imagine that if somebody mm. had an athlete that sort of another eight weeks after first four. What would the first four look like? It would just basically be a giant load for the entire time, right? There's no way you're going to be able to survive with any meaningful training that long. On the other hand, you know, if you have an advanced athlete, like I said, their MEV and the MRV are so close together, and also anytime they train for gains, I mean, they have to do a good job. They can, you don't just get gains coming in and moving the bar around once you're advanced. An advanced athlete can't do a really long accumulation cycle because they have to start so close to their maximum abilities 
they maybe have three weeks until they hit the top. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So it's one of those things where beginners, I think some beginners may be in a position where they can run a couple of their first mesocycles for about eight weeks before needing to deload because their adaptations are so great. Failure goes away from them because they get stronger, right? Uh, and they don't accumulate much fatigue because there's just tiny little muscles. They don't accumulate much of anything, right? But as you become more advanced, mesocycle length almost always shrinks. <laughs> Is simply because the easiest, the MEV where you start is already so hard, you mm-hmm. just don't have that many jumps to make. Awesome. Yeah, that explains uh, that question quite well. Thanks, Mike. And in the application of overload, taking out you know the physiology for a moment, um, you know all of the psychological aspects of training and how hard people train, um, you know, can definitely impacts how we structure a mesocycle. I mean, I know personally some very hardworking athletes who will be more than happy to take their training to MRV um, in a heartbeat if I let them. But I also work with people who, you know, you want to add weight to the body, like, oh, you know, I I can't do that. Um, So what are your thoughts on how we tackle those kind of psychological differences in the application of overload and mesocycle structure? (laughs) You know, I think uh, you use generally just good psychological practices in your coaching, being comforting, being supportive, <laughs> and trying to generate, uh, you know, some excitement about the process. Um, uh, and those are all think first line of defense kind of things. Especially, you know, people think like, what kind of people need encouragement? You know, if you train like housewives and stuff, some of them are warriors. They'll just die for you in the weight <laughs> training room. But uh, some of the toughest people I ever met are housewives that I've trained. I'm like, Jesus Christ, you're bleeding. Or don't you shouldn't you stop? They're like, ah. Like, oh, okay. Thank God I'm not your kid and never cross you. But, you know, the the other consideration there is some people just, you know, they're like, oh, I don't know, I might get hurt, etc. And you try to be supportive. You try to explain the process. I think at some point, if none of that works, one of the recourses that has to come is what I like to call real talking people. Mm. And at some point, especially, especially this is much easier if they're athletes that want to win. You sit them down and you go, here's the deal. This is what it's going to take to win. This is the dose of training you need to go through. Take your medicine. (laughs) That's it. Do you want to do it or not? And, and, uh, that's it. And it's just right there in the face. And if they don't, they don't. And if they do, great. But uh, at some point, because, you know, um, we can lose track of things, especially when we have a coach and we don't have to think about stuff very clearly mm-hmm. because the coach does for us. We as athletes can lose track of the big picture. And it's one of those situations where they can say, well, you know, like, I think I did enough today. And you have to, you have to be like, no, you did not. Here's what enough is. You have to do this. And they go, oh, shit. Okay, you're right. Well, when it's that clear, it's that mm. clear. But it goes both ways, too, because, you know, athletes, like you said, that you have that want to train to their MRVs and beyond all the time, you go, like, here's our window of adaptation. Here's MEV to MRV. You're right over here, which means you're just wasting your time and probably getting hurt. Are you in here for therapy or are you in here to get better? Because better occurs in this range and therapy can occur wherever the fuck else you want and it's irrelevant. You want therapy? Go see a therapist. In here, you're here to get better. Now, if, like if people are in the gym for therapy, then you can tell them, look, you won't be you won't be using the gym for therapy for long if you exceed your MRV chronically because you'll get so hurt you won't be able to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And whilst your lamp, uh, volume landmarks have no doubt improved our understanding of you know how much work we need to done and given some constraints and boundaries to thing, what have you seen to be the most common misapplications of your theories and the volume movement? 
Oh boy. Um, I think an early one that I hope people aren't making as much of a mistake, but I'm sure they are, is thinking that they always need to train at their MRV 100% of the time, which is impossible because you got about a week at it until you overreach. Um, some people, I, I think the most egregious misinterpretations of my ideas have come from people who I don't care that they misinterpreted because they're the kind of people that read half of a Facebook post and go design their training based on that. <laughs> so um, some of them just read the title of the concept. They say maximum recoverable volume. That means do the most and you'll grow the most. And that's been a big misconception. You know, I've been a person who has been um, kind of labeled as the guy who says like more is better. Well, the reason uh, myself and Dr. James Hoffman, my colleague uh, for my PhD program, the reason we coined the term MRV was to explain to sport coaches that we were working with that mm -hmm. there's only so much athletes can recover doing for more is literally pointless and probably backwards. We invented a concept to put a cap on how much you should be doing. Um, it, not, not to say that if you do any less, it's bad. You know, the MEV definitely says that, but because the MRV was the most logical concept that came first, I popularized it first, and a lot of people thought it meant just train as much as you possibly can. I was also, I probably... Mikey there. We were doing so well. Oh. Hey, yeah, can you hear me? I can. We were doing so well. I apologize. Yeah, no worries. Should I just keep rambling? Keep rambling, man. Cool. That's great. So, you know, I probably I probably over-exaggerated my earlier position on MRV because I was fighting kind of a war with what I call the new minimalists. And these were people that were saying, like, minimalist training, they were hashtagging it. And it's like... What does that even mean? Like you do the least work. They say like – and, and the people would pride themselves on saying things like, you know, I do the least work I can to get the results I want. Well, that's a misnomer because there's an N amount of work to get the results you want. There's no such thing as the least amount of work to get the results you want. Yeah. Um, and also people just interpret that as like the less I can do, the better. But that's false. There's an optimal amount that you should be able to do. Um, and I said, you know, people should try to train more because volume is so well linked with hypertrophy and strength, et cetera. And it's generally I thought it was good advice. So I think a big misinterpretation of MRV is that it says if you don't train balls to wall all the time, you're not going to be the best. I think MRV by itself is a good concept, but it really needs to be seen in the context of its other concepts. Yeah. If you understand at least the two concepts, MEV and MRV, and you know that your training should start at one every cycle and mm -hmm. end at the other, now you have a really powerful tool. It's very difficult to misinterpret that. But as usual, the actual recommendation is just a little bit more nuanced than people I think would like it to be. Yeah, people do always try to oversimplify things and as the fitness industry always goes, Mike, it's a pendulum and we're swinging back and forth from extremes. Um, and, totally. and on that, you know, one of the biggest, uh, I guess, misapplications I've seen, you know, I work with a lot of people uh, in the industry, a lot of uh, you know, evidence-based, uh, you know, fitness enthusiasts, I guess, and it's been evident to me that people have really started to push uh, the priority for volume whilst neglecting, um, you know, the quality of work. Would you agree? Has this been something that, you know, you've seen as a misinterpretation of the volume landmarks? What do you mean by quality of work? Just in terms of like trying to add sets and add volume whilst neglecting intensity, um, you know, effort, proximity to failure and these kind of things. 
Yeah, an interesting scene. Uh, volume editions work in the context of an otherwise well-designed program. Mm. Um, I, I actually got a question recently. You know, is it good to let your technique break down to get more reps or use more weight at the end of a metacycle so that you get stronger? Yeah. Of course it's not fucking good. Your technique allows you to lift the most mm. weight. First of all. Second of all, it's just a really good way to get hurt. Um, so a lot of people like, you know, anytime you take one concept and you crown jewel it and you think it's just the best thing ever and you start uh, at the expense of everything else, you're already making a mistake. So people say it's volumes, number one, forget about all those other shit. And you never want to forget about all this other shit. So always have really good technique. Always see volume in the context of your entire program. Always make sure you're hitting a requisite planned intensities. And you know, if, 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 you, if you have a critique of, well, it's not for hypertrophy, lifting heavy isn't as important as doing more work. I actually agree with that. But that comes back to the original design of your program. That doesn't mean that you should try to lift like at 80%. And when you run aground with that, you're like, well, I need to add more volume. I just do a bunch of sets at 60%. Why don't you start lifting at 65% and work up to 75%? That's logical. It's progressive. It doesn't make you throw away the whole plan. And the entire time, you are meeting your volume needs, but in a logical manner that you planned to begin with in the first Awesome. And my final question for you, Mike, is in regards to periodization uh, in the context of hypertrophy, because like you alluded to earlier, the majority of the research and origins of periodization stem from strength-based sports, um, specifically you know, the Olympics, um, which are all sports that are dictated by performance on a single day, in contrast to bodybuilding and hypertrophy, where you know, we're looking for aesthetic adaptations, and that you know, our training accumulates fatigue, which obviously masks our fitness and performance. So whilst performance proxies are obviously, uh, you know, good metrics um, and a good way to monitor, you know, training progression and all the rest of it, um, my question is in terms of applying what we know about periodization and phasic structure of training, um, have there been any areas where you feel the transfer of the theory may not necessarily hold up? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, a, a good example that comes to mind. So periodization is not a set of practices. It is a theoretical framework. And the set of practices is going to change wildly based on the demands. So, um, you know, typically when periodization occurs for strength sport, we lay down a foundation of volume, then we have what was called a basic strength phase, and then after that you peak for one time really good performance. That means that throughout that mesocycle, intensity increases will predominate and volume will fall throughout that macrocycle, right? Sometimes even through the mesocycle. So like you'll have programs that are like sets of 12 one week, sets of 10 the next week, sets of eight the next week, sets of six the next week, deload, repeat. That's a fine way sort of, uh, that particular example is not that great, but that's a fine way to kind of peak for strength. But I don't think it is really well designed to peak for hypertrophy because hypertrophy, as we know, is more volume dependent than intensity dependent. And though intensity increases probably do help, they cannot come at the expense of volume increases, right? So with that program where you go from 12 to six reps or even mesocycle by mesocycle, you reduce reps, you're literally reducing the total volume and for sure reducing the hypertrophic stimulus at a time when your body is becoming increasingly more adapted to the stimulus. 
So the periodization still works, but it has to look completely differently in, in many respects. One of the ways in which it looks different is if we split up into three mesocycles, let's say, our, our block for, period is, uh, for, for hypertrophy, the first mesocycle should be moderate volumes. The second mesocycle should be really high volumes because we've gotten used to moderate volumes already. And the last mesocycle may need to be shorter, but resensitize our bodies to greater volumes to come by doing lower volumes maybe for strength. And then come back around and repeat the process again. So it's like plenty of volume, more volume, a little bit less volume to resensitize the whole process because it's very, very likely that volume is something you can get used to and just more of it doesn't work. It's literally the same thing happens in every single system, right? It's like if you're training for peak power, after a while you can't just keep jumping high and doing the weightlifting movements. You just don't add any more power. You have to come back around and expand your muscular endurance base, work capacity, hypertrophy. Then you do general strength. Then you come back to power. Same thing but a little bit in reverse for hypertrophy so we cannot simply copy and paste a, a a way of periodizing that worked for strength and assume it works for hypertrophy it doesn't and a lot of it's kind of different so for example um and this is a funny interaction i've had numerous times my recommendation has generally been a mesocycle could be about you know uh, sets of eight to tw- eight to twelve reps in for one mesocycle or maybe two and then another mesocycle of sets of like 12 to 20 reps, for example. And then a, a resensitization mesocycle with sets of like six or something. After that, not a big deal. So basically we're going from a sets of eight to 12 to like 12 to 20, one mesocycle to another. Uh, a critique, quote unquote, which is comical to call it that, that I have received is, yeah, but like the weights you're lifting are going to be lighter in the second mesocycle than in the first. In my first response in my own head, I usually don't say this out loud, is you dumb motherfucker, who gives a shit? Are you trying to get as strong as possible? And they've literally said they're like, how are you supposed to get strong using this? You're not supposed to get strong, you dumb asshole. We're trying to get big. Like – you know, you go into the gym and find the strongest guy. He's not going to be a bodybuilder. He's going to be a powerlifter. You know, and I'm sorry, like uh, Jesse Norris just is not that big of a guy, right? And if you said, "Hey, Jesse Norris, do you gonna let let's try to get you bigger?" He'd be like, "Okay." He'd be like, "Do you think that means we got to make you stronger?" He'd be like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" Like, yeah, maybe for reps, but like, how the fuck am I supposed to get stronger than this? You know what I mean? So yeah, adding volume, and of course you get stronger over time, right? The 8 to 12 mesocycle you do in a year is going to be more weight than you did a year ago, but you may even sequence, the volume has to be the thing that goes up the most. Does that make sense? You can't just use the weight, you know, within each microcycle, yeah, the weight goes up, but between mesos, you can't just linearly approach it like we used to and say, okay, we got to add more weight to the bar. Yeah, if we adding weight to the bar is priority number one, sure, it is for strength. But it's one of those things that for hypertrophy, since volume is key, I think it should be the one that's tracked. So periodization still works, but the structure of it looks very much different. Perfect. And that was exactly my uh, my question. And you answered that uh, brilliantly. Thanks for that, Mike. And cool, my, yeah, that's the final question I had. All I'm going to ask you, Mike, is What's next for you? We're getting you down to Australia in 2018. What's on the horizon for Dr. Mike Isratel? Yeah. Can I give another really super quick an, an analogy to the the, yes. rule, the Okay, sweet. I just had this on my mind. I got to share it. So uh, maybe you can like cut this out and put it as this yeah, little I'll... YouTube video. Uh, <laughs> let me know if you do. So uh, an analogy to what periodization is to training is like what the structure of building a large uh, object is to engineering. Um, if you're building a skyscraper, you first design, uh, you know, you first build the base, right? You actually dig into the ground and then you build the whole basement and all the supports and then you build the floors and then you put the spire on the top, right? It's a three phase model. It works really well. And people would say, well, that's how you build big objects. 
totally. In, in bridges, let's say if you build a big bridge, you build the bases, the pillars, right? And then you erect the bridge and then you put all the fancy stuff on top. Same thing. But if you're building like a space shuttle, okay, you don't build anything into the fucking ground because the space shuttle isn't built into the ground. But what do you do? You build a framework around the, what is going to be the shuttle. Then you start erecting its big components and then you fill in the little stuff after that. The idea of periodization is much like the idea that some kind of framework and base has to be built, but that'll look very different depending on what you're building. Then the meat and potatoes are filled in, and then you work on the details specific to exactly what it is that you already want. That's periodization. The exact structure of how that looks is really different based on if you're building a skyscraper or a ship or a space shuttle. You don't, you know, you build a ship in in a in a like a ditch and then you fill it with water later. I sure as hell hope you're not doing that with skyscrapers. Like, all right, fill it with water. People, what the fuck is wrong with you, right? So the, we can't say periodization is never a copy of a training plan for a different out outcome. It has to be something that understands the logic. We're building a framework first, then filling in the big stuff, then putting in like the you know, the sprinkles on top. That's the real essence of periodization. If you can understand that, you won't be filling space shuttles up with water and you won't be practicing hypertrophy mesocycle design by increasing intensity like crazy and forgetting to increase volume. I'm so glad that you pulled me up to add that in, Mike, because I really, really like that analogy. And I think a lot of people will understand that and hopefully won't put water in space shuttles. So, Mike. For sure. <laughs> back to uh, the final question. Uh, which was what's next for you, what's happening in uh, 2017, 2018. We're getting you to Melbourne in June. Very excited about that. Um, what else have you got planned? Oh, boy. Um, lots. The recovery, lots. The recovery <laughs> book is almost complete. It should be out before the end of December. There's a huge, huge book, and it's going to be like a real good reference frame for how to recover from training, which has yet to be really well covered in our field. Um, and then, so the recovery book is coming out and then after that, we've got a bunch of seminars, my, myself and, um, I'm actually going to Israel on December 14th, 15th. Then, uh, next year I'm going to be going to Hong Kong with Jared Feather. We're going to be going to a big European tour with Dr. Hoffman and Dr. Davis. Um, then, um, seeing, seeing some kangaroos and koalas down in the, the big south of the world and uh, hopefully some bogans as well. Uh, really, we just got Australia to, to see how the bogans are doing. Um, and Mel Melbourne, unfortunately, has very few of them. We prefer, uh, you know, uh, the Queensland and stuff uh, for for that kind of thing. And they never disappoint. No, they so, yeah, but Melbourne, you guys are all just coffee drinking hipsters at this point, and so there's true, a, man. the great breakfast place at every every corner. And I'm just like, wow, I feel I feel like I'm uncultured when I go to Melbourne. <laughs> I feel like I got to dress fancier. But you know, when I'm in Brisbane, you know, I no problems there. <laughs> so um, so yeah, we're gonna be going to Australia, and then another European tour with Steve Hall. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that. And then I'm actually going to India with a couple of other uh, fitness pros in uh, October 2018. Cool. That'll be super fun. Um, and we've got all kinds of super releases, some of them super top secret, but everything really cool is going to be coming out, renaissanceperiodization.com. And we're actually, um, last thing I have to mention, we are building a world-destroying mechanical octopus, um, and hopefully that'll be done by 2019 because we're really tired of the world and we want to destroy it with a huge nuclear-powered octopus. Mike, 
I really appreciate your uh, satire and very cynical humor. It's it's brilliant. <laughs> we'll see how much satire you have when the octopus is at your front door, sir. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time and uh, all the work that you do for free online with the podcast, the articles. Myself and everyone uh, in the evidence-based community and fitness community appreciate it. So thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem. Thank you.